0: 10d10 plus 50 lizard folk. <laughs> oh, is, is that not enough? How about 1d3 pet basilisks, 1d6 wyverns?
1: Yeah, it just likes them. <laughs> yeah, it's just...
0: Right, like these tables are hardcore. Yeah. Brian Pool in New York City. I'm your host Shane, and I'm your host Ishan, and welcome to episode sixty nine of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing
1: the newest release for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, Bolo's Guide to Monsters. We'll walk you
0: through it cover to cover and let you know whether it's worth adding to your collection. So, before we do that, I just got back from my favorite convention of the year, not named Gen Con, a catacon. This is your second time going. It is, and the first time is a special guest. All the way to Ohio, was it worth it? Oh uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, we can get into the details of it next week because yeah. we got to get started on Volos Guide.
1: <laughs> we got a lot to say,
0: but I'll just say as a preview that um, you know I love going to a Catacon because I always meet great people, uh, I get to play new games, and I get to see like, new perspectives and approaches from people. Um, and, and how they play games differently from how we play at home so it, it kind of helps expand my horizons
1: and i like it when you're not around
0: exactly uh and i also ran an adventures league game so i can now check that off my list i now have that experience it was the one written by james intracasso yeah yeah friend of the show james intracasso i think his first adventures league module and i had about 10 minutes to prep it <laughs> so <laughs> i will tell you all about how it went <laughs> next week
1: all right, so let's get into the full review of Volo's Guide to Monsters. This is the second new RPG sourcebook from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition. The first one was the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide a year ago, which was a campaign book set in the Forgotten Realms. And in the same way, Volo's Guide is focused on Faroon. It presents lore, stat blocks, and PC write-ups for many new monstrous races. It's basically a Forgotten Realms monster manual.
0: We're going with Faroon or Faerun.
1: Whichever you prefer.
0: Okay, it's a made-up thing with a stupid symbol over it anyway. (laughs) All right, so who is Volo? Because this is written sort of from his perspective, right?
1: Yeah, Volo's a jerk. (laughs) Like a big jerk, which I guess makes sense because he was created by Ed Greenwood.
0: Oh, okay. How do you really feel? (laughs) Ed Greenwood, creator of Forgotten Realms, not a listener of the show. Wonder why.
1: I like the symbol. She's (laughs) nice-ish. So Volo's a minor magic user and a big name author in the Forgotten Realms. A lot of second edition source books from TSR were written from his point of view, starting in like the early 90s. Uh, For those of you who played the Baldur's Gate video game, Volo showed up. And then years later, he showed up in the Neverwinter Nights 2 video game.
0: Yeah. So he's basically like a bard that travels around the realms and collects a bunch of lore.
1: Mm Mm-hmm and then shares that lore with dubious accuracy.
0: Yeah, and then uh, this entry into his works has got some footnotes from Elminster dabbled in the margins.
1: Yeah, it's something that Elminster usually does with Volo's works, partly because he likes to make fun of Volo and partly because he feels an obligation to make sure that at least some of the truth gets out.
0: Yeah, and what this creates is the idea that Volo is sort of an unreliable source of information, so it builds sort of an in-canon excuse for GMs to go off-book.
1: Yeah, it explicitly says this is a reason that you can explain to your players why the monsters that they're facing are don't have the same abilities as the monsters in this book. Now, we have always <laughs> changed monsters as we saw fit from Monster manuals.
0: Yeah, the idea that you have to have a reason for that is a little strange to me, but I understand that not everybody plays games the way that we do.
1: Yeah. I wonder how that plays out in Adventures League, right? You're sitting there going, look, it says I can change it.
0: Yeah, I, we can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because as a, as a, as a DM in Adventures League, I felt very beholden to what mm. was published. But anyway, we can talk about that later.
1: So the book is broken into three sections. There's monsters.
0: Uh, I believe they're called chapters. <laughs>
1: uh no a chapter is a group of soldiers
0: oh right okay. <laughs> super soldiers
1: that's right so there's monster lore character races and then the bestiary
0: are we calling it bestiary or bestiary i say bestiary but i know people say bestiary i'm assuming that both are valid and that this is just a <laughs> are we saying cobbled or kobold i say both i say only kobold okay all right so section one golem is... or golem.
1: <laughs> it's definitely Golem because Golem is now a weird little uh, mutated hobbit. Okay, I fine. I don't sp- well, well, what is the original uh Yiddish?
0: Is it Yiddish or is it Hebrew?
1: The symbols are definitely Hebrew.
0: I again, it doesn't matter cuz I don't speak either. <laughs> so, I don't know.
1: You have no experience with the Mama I'm okay. the I'm the worst. <laughs> Okay, so section one, Monster Lore, has long-form write-ups of nine iconic D&D monsters. Talks about their personalities, their societies, their physiology, their goals. And it's got a lot of advice for GMs about how to use them in-game.
0: And story hooks, right? Mm -hmm. Very much plot hooks kind of wrapped into this.
1: It's kind of similar to some of those old source books from 3.5. I'm thinking like Lords of Madness, which detailed uh, five different kinds of aberrations. It's not actually that much shorter than the write-ups in those books, though. Beholders got 24 pages in Lords of Madness, but in Volo's Guide, they still get 14. And there are so many more monsters in this book.
0: That count is a little bit weird, too, because there's actually two entries for Beholders, right? (laughs) There's this part of it, and then there's also the stat blocks themselves. So it's actually closer to what Lords of Madness had in the first place. So the first monsters that get a big write-up are Beholders.
1: It just goes alphabetically. The section starts off by stressing the personality traits common to all beholders, so extreme intelligence and paranoia, and then it sort of muses upon, you know, how does that affect their mindset and their outlook or their interactions with other kinds of creatures?
0: Yeah, for me, this is the first time looking through 5e that I considered a beholder more than just a challenging monster. Yeah. Right? Right. I mean, I know beholders are smart. I know they have these abilities. I know they shoot random eye beams, right? And they show up in dungeons and they're a challenge. But this kind of brought them a little more to life.
1: Yeah, like, oh, that's why they're called eye tyrants. Right. (laughs) Huh. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that I really like pretty much all of these write-ups in the monster lore section. I know a fair amount about, you know, mind flayer society and how they interact and what their goals are. But to have that applied to a monster that I usually have just thought of as like a solo encounter. Right. Yeah. Was really interesting. It then goes on to talk about strange physiology quirks. And it does this for all the monsters. Beholders apparently reproduce through dreams. Yeah, whatever. You know, don't worry about it. (laughs) And then it describes three new types of beholders that all get write ups in the bestiary the Death Kiss, which is like a vampiric beholder that has suckers. On the end of its tentacles instead of eye rays. Yep. The goth, a miniature magic-eating
0: beholder. And my favorite, the gazer, the tiny little beholder that can be a familiar.
1: Gazer beam! Exactly. <laughs> my favorite part of the section actually is the tables for physical characteristics because they cover freaking everything from body and eye size to the girth of the stalk and the texture of the skin. It can be segmented. (laughs) Great. (laughs) It's not necessary, but it really drives home that point that beholders hate anything that isn't exactly like them.
0: Including, you know, other beholders. Yeah, yeah. Almost especially. uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you also get the tables for personality traits that has flaws and bonds as well. It's basically like a PC. And that gives you... Lots of ways to kind of generate your own NPCs and then figure out how does that fit into my campaign, right? Because they've tend to have goals that are gonna be not party friendly that fit in as conflicts for the PCs. Yeah, so each monster section
1: has this section. So I wouldn't necessarily take the bonds and ideals and flaws tables from these sections and let your players roll on them.
0: No. And I mean it doesn't recommend that either. Mm-hmm. You're gonna get antisocial people. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: And then every monster section has uh, a list of names you can roll or just choose.
0: So this is dumb, but in the Morning <laughs> Glory campaign, Susie played the Great Old One Warlock and and had a spectator as a familiar that mm-hmm. we kind of hand waved, and it had a name. Two of them, actually, I think. Right, Yog. Yog Saha. Right. Only beholders I've ever heard named. Never once in however long I've been playing D anD D have I ever heard the name of a beholder or cared.
1: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I've seen adventures where a beholder has a name. It's usually long and dumb. Yeah. Kind of the way that dragon names are long and dumb. Uh-huh, yeah. But more unpronounceable.
0: Right. Yeah. But putting it front and center, I think, kind of reiterates that these are creatures with an ego, right? A yeah. sense of self.
1: A huge ego that I think doesn't usually come out in a game. Right. Yeah, it's just trying to kill you. They, they never have monologues. And I think from now on, my beholders will have monologues.
0: Um. Yeah. Yeah, they, they have mouths. If you if you want to call like their berating their enemies in combat a monologue, sure. B Ray Ting, nice. <laughs> I try.
1: The next section is battle tactics, which is
0: the best. Yeah, this is what every monster manual should have in every entry.
1: It is so helpful for running a creature that has so many different options in combat. Yeah, and it is thorough. Yeah, there's strategies for using the anti magic cone. How to stack eye rays on one person like it specifically says oh i don't know maybe you would use all three eye rays on the fighter
0: yeah and and same thing how to use your legendary actions and this is this annoying niche piece of the D discussion that i sometimes cross that kind of drives me nuts when i hear about how difficult an encounter is or how the encounter math works or anything And tactics aren't a part of that discussion Mm -hmm. because some DMs are brutal tacticians that carefully plan their fights and and know how they're going to maximize their their monsters. And others build based on a table and throw them together and they might make thematic sense or story sense, but how you actually approach combat could really let down the stat block that you're using.
1: Mm -hmm. And I like that this section really tries to make the point that every beholder should be played as a genius tactician.
0: And also has some non-combat uses for those eye rays.
1: (laughs) I love that it goes through literally every eye ray. And there's a whole paragraph or more about here are the different ways a beholder may use this particular eye ray in its daily life or in its machinations. Yep. I also really like the next section, variant eye rays. It's great for making unique beholders, but I found it the most helpful because it offers a look at what kind of spells the game designers equate with each other in terms of effect or power level. So for each eye ray the the normal beholder has, it lists different spells that you could swap it out for. So instead of a fear ray, the beholder could have a moonbeam or it could use gaseous form on itself or another willing creature. So when modifying other creatures that aren't beholders that have a fear effect, you know maybe it's a spell or an aura or they got like a fearsome howl, you now know you can probably replace that fear effect with a low-level damage effect, you know, because Moonbeam doesn't do that much damage, or with a mobility effect for that creature.
0: Uh, Hello, dragons. Yeah, right? Because <laughs> terrifying gaze doesn't make sense for every dragon.
1: No. It, I mean, terrifying it, presence, right? Frightful presence. That one,
0: yeah. But yeah, I could totally
1: see a, a mist dragon, right? It still does fire damage, but instead of the frightful presence, it just turns into gas. Right. Disappears. I'm out. Mm-hmm. The charm ray, for example, can re- be replaced with banishment, and telekinesis can be replaced with gesh that lasts for an hour. <laughs> and it's it's interesting because like the, these are different effects, but they have similar outcomes. Yeah, you know, like this PC is busy,
0: right? The that charmed PC will not be participating mm-hmm. for a bit. Okay, well now you're just gone. Period.
1: And I think, especially if you're in a campaign that. Uses a particular type of creature a lot, maybe it's an aberration campaign, you know maybe this isn't the first beholder your party has met, maybe it's like the eighth, yeah, it's really cool to be able to offer them <laughs> the fear of not knowing what they're going to encounter,
0: yeah, and I think that's a cool thing for beholders specifically because they're in that middle range of difficulty mm. where you can really they can be a terrifying early monster and they can become a still worrisome higher level monster as well like you know in groups they could be a threat kind of thing
1: yeah one bad save and like a beholder is going to ruin an entire party yeah
0: so it also comes with a battle map for a lair and uh, a pretty good breakdown of the description of the lair and then the tactics that the beholder uses in its lair the tactics offered for
1: the lair are well thought out you know using vertical shafts how does a flying creature prevent access to other kinds of creatures? How do they use their particular eye rays to foil pursuit or to set up traps ahead of time? But one thing that I kept thinking about was by the time you have an adventuring party that can even potentially handle a beholder, they don't really care if like there's a vertical shaft because they can climb or they can fly
0: or they can meld through
1: stone. They have ways to deal with mobility obstacles.
0: Yeah, but those obstacles also help with immersion right it makes it feel more like this is a beholder fight and not just another bag of hit points
1: see I agree but if I was running a super intelligent aberration that was super paranoid I think I would have it think oh you know what I'm really more afraid of adventurers teleporting in here
0: true but you're also limited by your means right so if you don't have a way of preventing teleporting you might as well do the other stuff
1: yeah I suppose it's also really useful I think uh, you can apply these tactics to something like a, a well maybe not a kobold warren because they can't fly but any kind of like maybe lower level creature that yeah. is flight yeah or you know creatures that could breathe water something like that sure it lists some treasure I, I like how it sort of broke down like this is the treasure that beholders are interested in and here's the other treasure that humanoids are interested in that beholders just don't care about right <laughs>
0: The the stuff they leave behind when they die right <laughs> Can they can they wear boots? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also got allies um and a table that covers minions or pets, which is great for building out a beholder encounter mm-hmm. that has sort of a personal effect, right? It's a way to to modify encounters over time that isn't just wholesale changes to stat blocks.
1: And man, one roll on each of these tables Added to a beholder's entourage makes it so much more formidable. You know, already you're dealing with so many things when you're taking on the beholder, but now you've also got the minions with you know big swords and you know using those magic boots that the beholder doesn't care about. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, there's the Xanathar Guild right up. It's a Forgotten Realms thieves' guild run by a secret beholder beneath Waterdeep.
0: So the next part of this chapter then is giants, which. I gotta be honest, feels like they cribbed a little bit from Storm King's Thunder.
1: Maybe it was the other way around.
0: Maybe this was in the works. Okay, yeah. Maybe. Uh, I, I just doubt it was parallel evolution. That's all I'm saying.
1: You have more experience with SKT than I do. How much of this information did you find complimentary?
0: That's a good question because I am playing in a Storm King's Thunder game, but we are not nearly far enough along to know. (laughs) So I I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. All right. We will
1: let you know at a future date. We actually do try to avoid adventure spoilers because sometimes we'd like to actually play
0: them. Yeah. And that's why we don't review them.
1: Yeah. It goes through the ancient history of the Giants and their old empire in the Forgotten Realms and then their fall from grace and spends quite a bit of time on the giant pantheon and how that resulted in the different types of giants and then the ordning which is the ordering of the different giants
0: so this stuff is interesting to me and and I know the knock on Storm King's Thunder is that there's a lot of meta plot that'll never come out for the players mm-hmm. this has that same feel to me of yes it makes them very rich monsters but it seems less applicable to actually put in front of my players. Because at the end of the day, I have to build a whole plot that, that brings something from this ancient history to the current age to make it relevant. I see
1: what you're saying. Like, okay, as a GM, I read this section, and now I understand all the motivations of the giants and the giant factions.
0: Right, now but, tell me how to show that to my players.
1: Yeah, like does it ever become important? I think when I was running the Morning Glory campaign, there was a lot of that. Lore that didn't end up coming out for you guys, and sort of looking back, I was like, Oh, I wish I'd like presented that in some way, yeah. Which is why I think later in the campaign, I was basically handing you guys scrolls, yeah. yeah. And then a lot of the decisions that you had to make were based on the information found in those scrolls, and that was sort of my way of getting that out. Now, that takes a little extra work,
0: yeah. And it's you know, also, (laughs) we were. Quite a ways down the road before we could even get to that point, right? Yeah, and of course you need players who
1: are interested in like the minutia of giant society. Yeah,
0: you know, and I, I think the because of the ordining, that's probably the most likely place to throw in PCs mm-hmm. is to get involved and try and influence the ordning itself. Um, not that that's a particularly giant friendly way of you know, I don't, I don't know they're gonna receive that too well, but that's a very tactile piece of giant society that players could get involved in and yet it doesn't do a whole lot to tell me about that Mm -hmm. um, or or how to use that so something to think about as you're reading this
1: section there's a bit on the giant language there's a small glossary and then it gets more in depth into giant life what is it like to be a giant in general for example there's a section on what's in a giant's bag all kinds of weird crap
0: yeah (laughs) uh Definitely noticed that in Storm King's Thunder. <laughs> we found a bronze gong and an ore <laughs> To hit the gong. I, I mean, I guess.
1: <laughs> I like that one is a halfling in a cage. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then there's a discussion of rock throwing contests. Which
1: apparently are really important to every kind of giant. Yeah,
0: it uh, makes sense. Okay. Somehow.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a table with lifespans, which I found really interesting. I actually didn't know that they lived that long.
0: Yeah, like, I've never really thought about it.
1: They live until we murder them.
0: Yeah, it works. Yes. And then there's the same tables that we have for every monster, personality traits, bonds, and flaws.
1: After that, there's a section on each kind of giant which explains their society and how the particular virtue that they base their ordering on affects the way that they live their lives. So first off is cloud giants who live in sky castles uh, in opulence and... Base their ordering on you know how much money and casual displays of wealth they can afford.
0: Yeah, conspicuous consumption. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lovely.
1: I did like how they closely tied it to the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, oh yeah, cloud castles <laughs> right. and uh, they have big gardens with like giant gourds. that yep. I don't know, maybe someone can make a house out of right.
0: Uh, and then there's the cloud giant smiling one is the monster entry that comes later for the cloud giants. Mm-hmm. They're devoted to the two-faced cloud
1: giant god Memnor. So it's kind of weird thinking about a giant, like literally a huge giant who views himself as like a trickster or a jester.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, then there's the fire giants and they're tied to forge work. And slavery. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing. <laughs> well, how else do you get those forges running?
1: <laughs> Hard work? Eh. And then the new monster is the Fire Giant Dreadnought, which was available in
0: the previews. Yeah, and has possibly the dumbest piece of art in this entire book.
1: Hey, two shields this is the that the uses like a art. shovel. Dumbest pieces of art in the entire <laughs> book.
0: Okay.
1: I wanted mechanics for wielding two shields. It does get double its AC from the shields. So, you know, something to think about, GMs.
0: Great. Then we have Frost Giants which are given to raiding and plunder. They're big blue Vikings. Basically,
1: yeah. How do the surrounding communities support an apex predator like this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they eat so much. I I don't know. I can't imagine that there could be more than like four frost giants. Uh, in, it, it, it's Forgotten uh, Realms. Okay, just, right. Just all right. wave your hands. Create food and water. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Apparently, they train pets, including remoras, which don't make any sense to me because those are like one of the few creatures in the frozen north that get really hot
0: No, that's that's been like a long running thing for frost giants though is that the Remaraz is one of their associated monsters and they hunt yetis right that's dumb yeah it just is and we get the frost giant everlasting one in the stat blocks
1: and then a bit of explanation about the rivalry between Thrym, the god of the frost giants, and Surtr, the god of the fire giants.
0: Yeah, can't imagine why they would come into conflict. Yeah. So then we have hill giants, which are big, dumb, gluttonous giants who have no reason for any further expansion or discussion.
1: Yeah, it's less than a page and right.
0: it doesn't need it. Uh but they do get the mouth of Grolantor as a uh expanded stat entry. They're gross. Yeah.
1: Next up is Stone Giants, and they have a very long entry, which I found honestly fascinating. It's really focused on artistry, and it gives them their odd place in the ordering because they've got a high wisdom, and they're really respected by all of the other giant types. Yeah, even though they're not... Particularly powerful. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're, they're with the lowest
1: behind hill, right? I think they might be, yeah. yeah. There's a big section on what it's like to live your entire life in the dark and underground with stone overhead and if a stone giant spends too much time on the surface with the open sky above they go, they go kind of crazy.
0: Yeah it's a really interesting parallel with dwarves. Mm. They're the giant version of dwarves basically. And that gives rise
1: to the new monster the dreamwalker which is actually pretty terrifying. Yeah that one actually deserves a bit more description.
0: So what is the dreamwalker?
1: <laughs> it's a stone giant that spent too much time on the surface and believes that everything it sees is, is a dream because, you know, this unchanging place of, like, wind and rain and erosion, it's just, it can't be real.
0: It's living in a nightmare. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so that manifests as you living in its nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you get charmed by it too long, it just grabs you and sticks you to its body and you become stone. Sweet. Yeah. It's a save, save, or die.
0: I have always wanted to be the pauldron of a storm to, of a stone giant. <laughs>
1: They build it bigger and bigger, and pretty soon we're in 40k.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of Storm Giants, uh, let's just move on to Storm Giants.
1: I really like how this section opens with the giant's definition of quote-unquote chaotic good. Because that's their alignment. Right. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes they get angry if you piss them off,
0: and they destroy a village. Yeah, they're like Poseidon.
1: They're sad about it. You know, they apologize, they'll try to make amends, but, like, everybody's dead.
0: Yeah, well, that is a little bit better than Poseidon. <laughs> That's
1: true. Hey, he gave us the horse.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So they have a big emphasis placed on omens.
1: Yeah. They spend a lot of time with prophecies that they want to see fulfilled, so they want to live as long as possible. Right. And sometimes the way they do that is literally turning into a storm, a storm giant quintessent, right? which has a write-up later in the book. So after giants moving along in alphabetical order, we get gnolls. Terrifying hyena people. Actually, not even people, right? They're basically demons.
0: Yeah, they're hyena demons. They're demon cults of Yinagu.
1: Yeah. I really liked how this section takes seriously the null mindset and really delves into what is it really like to be wholly focused on killing and eating all the time.
0: Which was really interesting to read, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I really like this section, though I read it and I immediately thought, hey, if I'm not playing in Forgotten Realms, I'm throwing all of this out.
1: I find them more interesting as monsters that have more free will than this. I right, agree
0: exactly, and and that's the that's the challenge of this for me as a DM is I like to have more thoughtful enemies than mindless slaughterers in the name of their god.
1: This might be interesting applied to hill giants actually. Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in this book in Forgotten Realms they have, there's no society to speak of so it's arranged by their position in the warband and that also really determines their abilities and the stack block that you get later. Uh, in section 3 which are the flind the flesh gnar the hunter and the undead witherling as well as the animal looking lucrata although it's actually smarter than most gnolls
0: yeah what's interesting about that is all the gnoll stat blocks i think are under cr3 except for the flind which is cr9 so it, it creates a very strange dynamic to have in play the challenge is going to be difficult to manage when you've got a bunch of you're going to have lots of little nothings running around with the one big bad.
1: Yeah, and I think you'd need to telegraph that in game. Like, okay, packs of gnolls, those are scary until like you're level four or five. But if there's a flint, they're terrifying for pretty much forever.
0: And you're gonna to have to know what the flint is uh-huh. based on it having it's three different lashes right. which it uses <laughs> each round. <laughs>
1: all all of these new gnolls have so many attacks
0: uh, yeah they do yeah it and they keep their rampage ability too which mm-hmm. is when they reduce a creature to zero they make a bonus action attack and i think they can move in the process and i think the
1: Flynn can trigger it or is that the lucrata
0: yeah one of them
1: can yeah lists some allies such as they are and then really nice tables for creating a warband from scratch not just the creatures that are in it but like what is the name that terrified peasants call it
0: right and that's one of the interesting things about the culture of gnolls is that they can't just be mindless reavers because they prey on communities and those communities have to continue offering things to them, right? Like, namely, souls to collect for, uh, for my boy Yinagu.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, the next section is Goblinoids. I love this one, mm-hmm. except for one thing, Uh-oh. which I know we can't undo, but no bugs. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get to this. You hate Nilbogs? But Nilbogs are dumb.
1: Everyone hates Nilbogs. Yeah, because they're That's dumb. That's
0: the point. I, they're, they're, no, <laughs> goblins hate them.
1: You can't say that Nilbogs are dumb in front of a Nilbog.
0: Because would become a Nilbog <laughs> as punishment. <laughs> That's
1: right. This, I love the explanation of why goblins, bugbears, and hobgoblins are so closely tied together. It's because, like, there was a big, awful god that killed all of their gods, and was like, eh, you're all mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And goblinoid societies really are direct reflections of their specific gods.
0: Yeah, so it's very caste-based. Goblins, of course, being the lowest caste.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but it does detail some goblin spellcasters and then also those nilbogs.
0: Yeah, so should we talk about nilbogs? Sure, yeah. So so nilbogs are avatars of like a goblin trickster god.
1: Yeah, who was destroyed but still manifests on occasion.
0: Yeah, and and they're basically like haunting spirits of goblin warbands. So when a goblin warband kind of forms, uh, occasionally one of them will spontaneously turn into a Nilbog who is just a mischievous trickster but who is granted like reverence by the group so that he doesn't screw them up in war.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like it's basically a middle finger to... The bugbears and the hobgoblins who, like, gather the war host and then treat the goblins horribly. Right. So in order to prevent the Nilbog from showing up, who shows up when goblins are treated too badly. Yeah. They take the worst goblin and just make them the court jester who can say literally anything that they want. Right. Which is, I find, kind of hilarious.
0: I Yes, I get that. And that dynamic is fine. It's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: I mean, a lot of this is dumb. We got... Bander Hobbs back.
0: <laughs> also, one of these things is called a bug bear, which is neither bug nor
1: bear. I once had a character that was reincarnated as a polar bug bear.
0: Oh, interesting. All white. Again, neither bug nor bear, so dumb name. Like a peanut. <laughs> yes. Or a carpet. At least a peanut looks like a, like a nut. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, your goblins give you your spellcasters and your nilbogs. Then bugbears. Okay, guess what? They're
1: lazy and they're sneaky and they like to put severed heads on spikes.
0: And then your hobgoblins are your lawful evil tyrants. They're the smart ones, the mean ones, the the ones that bully everybody into place. And it's a, a nice treatise on what it really looks
1: like to live in a lawful evil society. Everything's arranged by military rank. There's a big section on honor and duty, which I thought would be really useful for any kind of stern orderly militaristic society so think you know spartans
0: or klingons yeah i could definitely see like a city state a lawful evil city state Mm -hmm. kind of adapting that as a as a human approach
1: yeah like if you're useful and stay in line you could probably survive there even if you were an outsider yeah it also details two new organizations, one that trains wizards and another that trains monks. And then the Devastators and the Iron Shadows both get stat blocks in the bestiary.
0: And then, of course, there's lairs for both the goblins and the hobgoblins.
1: There's a fourth section in the goblinoid section that details the war Hosts specifically. Each race's position and responsibilities when they all gather and are called together to march and make war and a lot of info on the logistics of conquering and keeping territory. They're pretty similar to ancient Rome.
0: Yeah, and this is great because this gives you the the high-level view that you need to make this like a meta plot for your campaign. An encroaching goblinoid war host is gaining ground. Well, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I really like that goblins are usually low-level enemies, but a war host?
0: That's going to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there
1: are 10,000 goblins coming. Right. Yeah, that's something that even level 15 characters are going to need to pay attention to.
0: They're not going to be able to hack and slash their way through it at the very least. Yeah. Uh, and it also comes with a battle map of a war camp. So this next section is hags,
1: which I know you enjoyed a lot.
0: Yes, and I. this has to come with a caveat that I don't care for Fey at all.
1: I don't really either, and I don't really like hags that much but this section was awesome
0: yeah and and the reason it it sings to me is that i love the social challenge mm. of dnd um, and that's totally what hags embody because they're extremely tricky to actually bring down because they've got a lot of escape abilities mm-hmm. and they've got a lot of like really high level spells even at relatively low levels but the the idea behind the hag is that they're ugly creatures that delight in the disgusting and the disappointing uh, but they always try to make bargains. They're lawful. They they like helping people bring about their own demise mm-hmm. rather than simply overpowering them. Uh, and it talks a good bit about how to do that. What kind of offers would a hag make? And then how would a hag betray the confidence of the person they made that agreement with? Mm-hmm.
1: It's so useful for any kind of scheming character or, you know, devils. I really wish I had been able to read this before I was running Behemoth.
0: Yeah, in the Morning Glory campaign. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy you didn't.
1: <laughs> and then there's a section on like weird magic, like literally weird magic, and strange vehicles, broomsticks, big pots, that add a traditional witch or Baba Yaga flavor if you want to add that to your hag. In addition to the three hags in the monster manual, in this book you get stats for the physically imposing Anis hag and the cold-focused bure hag.
0: Yeah, so the hags tend to be tied to a location mm-hmm. um, that's sort of in their fluff so the beer hag is the cold and the anise hag is the mountain mountain think, yeah. yeah um and it also talks about hag covens so the idea of what happens when three hags get together and decide not to kill each other for now for now yeah. right um and how they procreate and interact the idea of the grandmother and the aunties and the Baby hacks, which is another great opportunity for a meta plot that doesn't become immediately obvious to the players. You know, it can it can have onion layers,
1: and is also a good way to slip in some like body horror because the, I mean, there's a lot in this entire book oh, for that is, kind of thing. It is
0: body horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, describing like how they pick at their own scabs to make themselves uglier and all these types of things great reading or like that lovely 12 year old child is probably a lovely 12 year old child
1: uh, until she turns 13 13,
0: yeah (laughs) um also gives you some alternatives for coven spells that's one of the tricks of hags is that when they're in a coven they gain much higher level spells that they can cast as a group
1: yeah almost like a a clerical domain yeah a bunch of new options yeah and like those alternate eye rays for the beholders it's a nice resource for the customization of other kinds of creatures or even for player options.
0: Right. And then it gets a cool lair right up um, because they don't have lairs or uh, lair actions in the Monster Manual, which is a little bit weird because a lot of times you think about, you know, like a green hag, a swamp hag. You you go find her hut, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to confront her. Um, But now we have that and and a lair for each type of hag.
1: Right, all of them, including the ones in the Monster Manual.
0: And regional effects, which are really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then quickly becoming one of my favorite parts of the book are the minion and pet tables for <laughs> hags because hags are manipulative and possessive and so they tend to find creatures that they can impress upon their will
1: and i love that this really runs the gamut like it could be 1d4 nobles because yeah. <laughs> they've got leverage
0: right right
1: <laughs> all right next up is the kobolds, kobolds. fine yeah they're small weak <laughs> and cowardly this section does a good job of highlighting the things they actually are good at. So tunneling, trap making, scavenging. I love that a, a kobold tribe could basically have any magic item that you want them to have cuz like they just found it. Yeah. Yeah. And then sorcery.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's like it was written by Tucker. Oh god. <laughs> Google Tucker's kobolds if you uh if you don't know what that's referring yeah. to.
1: Then come back and then read this section. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there are tables for scale color and pattern, which I always find fun and then write-ups on the kobold dragon shield, which is very martial, uh, the inventor, and the scale sorcerer.
0: Also gives you tactics and survival skills, how kobolds use that to their advantage, which is great for any time you want to run like guerrilla fighters, Mm -hmm. right? You could easily adapt that to a band kind of operating as a resistance in in the mountains.
1: Yeah, any group that's trying to punch above its weight. Yeah. And then there's a battle map of a huge kobold lair yeah
0: that one is like a mega dungeon yeah you know you could run a whole campaign just clearing that thing out though you're not gonna make it (laughs) well that's the thing is is if you actually like read the section the campaign should be going there and then figuring out how not to fight the kobolds (laughs) so after that we have mind flayers
1: talk about body horror
0: i i know those are one of your favorites
1: and that's the thing i we've talked well, I've talked before. I don't really like aberrations, but mind flayers are fascinatingly gross. Yeah. It talks about feeding and procreation. And uh, again, this is another thing where I'm like, how do they get so many brains? Yeah. Like. <laughs> Who keeps falling for this? Yeah, <laughs> how, What are the, the birth rates of nearby populations? Right. Because like, I think they need to eat fairly often. It's not like a vampire where you feed and like, you just keep people around like cattle.
0: Yeah. you got to actually <laughs> suck their brain out.
1: Yeah. And why haven't they learned agriculture yet? I don't understand. <laughs> right. Grow people. Come on.
0: Um, but yeah, so it it sets up the colony arrangement mm-hmm. around an elder Blaine, an elder brain. Elder Blaine. Yeah, Elder Blaine, the worst <laughs> of the street magicians.
1: <laughs> He's like, look, I got your nose. Yeah. Um, I don't think you do.
0: Uh, so the elder brain, the eulithrid, and the mind witness are new monsters, as well as the uh, Neothelid, I think it, we're pronouncing it? Neothelid? Something it's like a that. bloated giant monstrosity. It's the overgrown tadpole mm-hmm. in the Elder Brain's brine pool. That basically turns into a purple worm. Yeah. And then there's the Alhoon, which is the magical Mind Flayer, the one who abjures psionics in favor of arcane magic. And then the Mind Flayer Lich, which is the highest CR in the book, 22. Mm-hmm. It goes through the colony arrangement, the life
1: cycle of Mind Flayers and of the colony and how an Ulitharid can break off and create a new colony, kind of like social insects.
0: Yeah, Ulitharid are like the first amongst the Mind Flayers, sort of. They're like the hobgoblin of Mind Flayers. Yeah,
1: basically. And they eventually rise up to either challenge the Elder Brain or say, hey, I'm going to take these guys and find some brains elsewhere.
0: Right, like, don't kill me. I'll just go. Right. (laughs)
1: There's a big section on thralls, uh, how to create them, what uses there are for them, and how specific races act as thralls. Yeah.
0: And then with that, they've got colony goals. So how they survive, how they control, develop thralls, how they destroy and subvert. It's basically the plot hook section. Mm -hmm.
1: There's a section on nautiloids, which are basically Mind Flayer spaceships or planar vessels.
0: Yeah. This is where it gets a little too out there for me to really (laughs) care, you know?
1: And then it goes into their interactions with magic, which they mostly hate, and their quote-unquote gods, which are really sort of like omniscient philosophies. Yeah. And then some magic items and graphs, but they're only usable by mind flayers or their thralls, so like, whatever. Yeah,
0: that was a total waste of space, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, here's a cool magical item that you will never be able to use after you kill them and find it.
1: Right, why make it a magic item? Just, like, put it in a stat block.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, all you're doing is holding the weapon that's going to help your enemy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So next up is orcs. Now, you know that orcs are one of my favorites. Yes. I like this section. I actually liked it a lot. Uh, it talks about the orc gods and, and their pantheon in a way that to me gives them a lot of richness that you could actually dig into as, as player characters and kind of understand orcs.
1: It does explain why they're all awful because their gods are awful. To each other.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> to everyone. And not just Grumsh.
0: No, no. Grumsh kind of gets a sympathetic light. Yeah. He's like trying to keep these knuckleheads in line.
1: <laughs> I do like how the themes of each individual god trickle down directly into the particular orcs that revere them and then the way that that plays out in orc society. Right. So in addition to Grumsh, you get details on Ilnaval, the strategist's uh Brutal Bagtru, uh, Luthic the Cave Mother, Yurtris, who's covered in pestilence. He's basically. Like the god of death. Nurgle. Yeah. Yeah. And Shargas, uh, who, you know, has murderers and assassins. Yeah,
0: he's the betrayer god. <laughs> yeah.
1: It talks about childhood and what it's like to grow up as an orc, family life, lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, goals for pillaging. The goals listed for pillaging offer a lot of interesting reasons that PCs could actually maybe parlay with orcs rather than trying to eradicate them all. And there's a bunch of hooks and backstories for an orc or a half-orc PC.
0: And then it also gives some variants on orcs. So half-orcs, aurogs, uh the tanaruk, which is the demon-tainted orc, which are terrifying. Yeah, they get a stat block right up.
1: They get a bunch of attacks, man.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then there's five new types of orc warriors each associated with one of the gods so you'll you'll get something that plays on that theme more directly and then a cool battle map and now the yuan t
1: who i've never liked yeah but i found them more interesting with this write-up
0: the complete lack of emotion was interesting
1: i mean you could play them like a vulcan sure
0: but I, yeah, like I, so I'm still very... Why did it have to be snakes? Yeah, I just... <laughs> I don't... The snake thing doesn't bother me, but I just, I just don't care.
1: It goes into the human origin of the race like millennia ago and then the current lack of power that they suffer from in Forgotten Realms. It talks about the serpent gods, their counterparts in other settings, and I think this is one of the few times in this book that other settings get mentioned. Yeah, I think that and like maybe Goliath? Yeah, I think that might be it. It details their caste system, and man, it's a complicated caste system.
0: Yep, don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> it adds
1: entries to the top and the bottom. So you get the anathema, which is basically like a snake demigod at the top, and then the brood guard, which is... A babysitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also the brood whisperer, the nightmare speaker, and the pit master, as well as two more types of malisons, which are the like middle caste that is a snake-human hybrid. It gets stat blocks for all of those. And it, it does spend some time explaining what it would be like to live in essentially a sociopathic society.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. And that's the part of this that I would probably more take away um, than the specific Yuan tea flavor, you know, Um, because it it tastes like chicken, I believe (laughs) (laughs) because I think that is a lot of ways how PCs default to imagining the enemies of whatever they're representing. Hmm. Right, So a lot of times they think of orc society as sociopathic and emotionless or goblin society or cobbled society because, you know, they feel like their job is to go in there and kill them. Why would they have thoughts or feelings or emotions? So taking that and kind of codifying that and and actually introducing that directly could serve as a contrast.
1: Yeah, especially if you've... (laughs) earlier in the campaign trained your players to look at monsters as beings with depth and feelings
0: or or if they've rejected that right and and now you're actually showing them for the first time what it actually is like to have truly sociopathic enemies yeah hey actually
1: you you can you can just murder everything here right it's fine (laughs) yeah it's cool there's a whole page of tables to create customized yuan t so you know you don't have to decide what color the scales are, what color the human parts are, Right. how many tails it has. And there are new attacks and abilities that you can add to each kind of yuan But the problem is you don't swap them out and it doesn't increase the CR. So you don't really have a mechanical way to judge how powerful these new abilities are. You just yeah. kind of had to eyeball
0: it. Yeah. And then it gives a write-up of cities and a ziggurat is their battle map. Because you know, why not a ziggurat? But now we're on to chapter two, character races. So there are seven new PC races that are uh, the equivalent of a PHB race. And then there's uh, a handful more monstrous races that kind of just get the mechanical effects. Yeah, the
1: full write-ups, you've got the info on the physiology, culture, different types of names, and then the mechanical racial stats.
0: So let's just go through them, starting with... Alphabetically, two As, <laughs> the Aasimar.
1: Uh Aaron the Azamar. I'm really happy to see it fleshed out after that cursory detailing that it got in the Dungeon Master's Guide because I really like half Celestials, Asamar, things like that. But I really think the execution here is pretty lackluster.
0: Yeah, I'm less indifferent to the uh, the execution here, but go ahead. Well, they get the light cantrip, which is thematic, but they also get dark vision, so it's useless. Yep. But you can bring light to others, and isn't that valuable? uh, uh, Your rogue hates you. It's pure flavor. Yeah, I
1: know, in place of an actual useful ability. Once per day, small amount of healing, fine. Necrotic resistance, I think, is actually pretty handy, but radiant resistance is mostly useless.
0: Yeah, unless you're going to be going up against a lot of clerics.
1: Plus two charisma is good, but it can't really compete with the half-elf. And then you get the sub races. Each sub race, uh, which of which there are three, gets plus one to a different stat. And then once per day, can undergo a transformation. The thing I don't like about the transformations is that they each take an action to transform, and they only last a minute. So it's pretty bad action economy. You've really got to predict when you're going to need it, and chances are you're going to lose a round.
0: Yeah, I think that affects the protector less because it has a utility ability built in. Mm, yeah, right? I agree. So. Which is why you think the Protector is the best. (laughs) I don't,
1: yeah, I don't love the Asomar in general. I don't love any of these three in particular, but the Protector certainly I think is the best. That's plus one Wisdom. When you do Transform, you get a Fly Speed, and then once per round you can deal a fair amount of extra Radiant damage. It's equal to your character level.
0: Yeah. Um, The Scourge gets plus one con. Uh, deals extra radiant damage in the same way that the protector does Right, and then it gets an aura that hurts all creatures including yourself within 10 feet
1: it's a fair amount of damage you can turn it off with a bonus action but like okay, if you're in melee and you turn this thing on you're probably hurting your allies okay you know fine but if they go down now they're automatically failing death saving throws so maybe you turn it off and now it's useless but what if you get stunned now now you're i if i were the gm and that happened i would just have the enemies back away yeah. and let you stand there and like burn all of your allies to ash sure
0: <laughs> i yeah I, it is not a basic ability <laughs> you know it's it's the type of thing that has the potential to go wrong but i still i really like the flavor i think that's super neat and uh and i don't know i i still like it i think it's the coolest of the abilities and i would i would be happy to play that with plus ch- charisma and plus con i'm sure you'd
1: be happy to play it i wouldn't want to play when you were playing it oh well that's i mean that's a, a fair point ooh although an entire party of asamar all have radiant resistance that might be cool
0: yeah uh, then there's the fallen asamar which is garbage in both mechanics and in flavor mm-hmm. um, because it means that you can fail as your race and then change races as punishment, which we got rid of in the Paladin. Yeah. We brought it back for a race.
1: Yeah. Plus one strength. The extra damage you deal is necrotic. Want wah. And it's got a party unfriendly fear effect. Yeah. So who's going to want to travel with you? Uh,
0: yeah. Big problem there. mm mm-hmm. uh, Occasional use. I mean, it's not a useless power. It's just super unfriendly. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the idea of changing your stat block because you have failed as a race is... Bizarre and not having free will as a player character sucks.
1: Yeah. I think the only reason I would potentially use the fallen Azamar is to start that way with the like out of character goal of rising, you know, and becoming one of the different ones.
0: Yeah. I would rather start as a fallen than I would become a fallen Uh, midway through. And uh, yeah. Especially because it's worse.
1: Right. Next race was in the previews, the
0: Ferbolg,
1: which is kind of a cross between a Goliath, a gnome, and an elf. Like, yeah, the, if they all had a weird orgy baby.
0: This is like a Celtic mythology thing, right? Oh, is it? I, I is that think... why it's
1: so dumb? <laughs> Probably. Those, those dumb Celts. <laughs> they are gentle protectors of nature. But I have to say, I find it really hard to see why one would even be an adventurer.
0: No, it's even worse than Celtic. It's Irish. Uh, yes, I, I agree. They do have that sort of... Uh, so much whimsy that why would they ever get attached to a group that they would have to travel with you know
1: yeah like in order to be an adventurer their personality has to be so different from the write up in the book they're like why is that included
0: yeah they're basically like Tom Bombadil
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) but they're the only race so far that has plus two to wisdom so I think you're going to be seeing a lot of them
0: yeah and then they get a plus one strength which is not a great combo unless you're a cleric yeah, a melee cleric, yeah. which there's the right specifically this. says they don't really do cleric. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but they get disguise self, detect magic, and they can turn invisible for a bit at will.
1: And they can talk to animals, and they're nice enough they'll probably carry all your gear, which they can do because they have powerful builds.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I, you know, it's it will not upset me if there's a forbold player.
1: Yeah, I wish we'd gotten maybe a different race and then of course the next one is Goliath which I
0: find has so much overlap Uh, they do kind of fit the same spot Uh, Goliath doesn't have the wisdom bonus it's strength and con Um, but they're both seven feet tall right they carry a
1: lot of gear yeah
0: both half giants basically (laughs) Um, you know the Goliath gets a shout out to Dark Sun because in Athos they're called half giants and they're actually half blooded giants I don't know how that works but yeah whatever
1: ask Hagrid's mom
0: yeah (laughs) And then once per encounter, they can reduce incoming damage by a d12 roll.
1: Yeah, it's the same write-up as the Elemental Evil Player's Companion.
0: Which is fine to recycle. Yeah. I guess, because there's enough other content here. But why this and not the Aarakocra?
1: Yeah. Like, I remember in Sword Coast Adventures Guide, they reprinted this for Neblin, which we already had access to. But they added a feat. Yeah. And I was really hoping that there'd be something more for the Goliaths. Yeah. They don't even get sub races. Adding sub races actually would have been awesome.
0: Yeah, if they could have tied that to like frost or mm-hmm. fire giant. Yeah, they're half giants. They yeah. Throw them in. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, then we get the Kenku. They're like crow or raven people. Oh, oh right. We are now in the furry p- portion. Yeah. We're feathery, feathery or scaly. Or scaly yeah. yeah. But we are now in some animal slash man. I think these are really tough to run as either a player or a GM
1: because, like, canonically, they can't speak, They they can only mimic. Yeah. So, and this is even worse. They are unable to create or imagine anything new. <laughs> so, like, I it really takes a particular kind of player who wants to play a PC that cannot participate in any planning sessions.
0: Yeah. Or you're playing that one special Kenku who can.
1: Uh, again, this is a thing where maybe I would be interested if I started off as a, a Kenku, like a normal Kenku, and maybe I'm like a minion of one of the other players. But my goal is to somehow like learn that creative or imaginative spark, kind of like the scarecrow in the wizard of Oz. Like I want my brains to be different and yeah. that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, Great. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Around level eight, I become a normal PC. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, but you'll get plus two decks, plus one wisdom. You're good at forgery and mimicry. And then you get some rogue skills and, uh, and you can, you can do the mimic sounds uh, with a deception check that, a couple different creatures get.
1: So you're basically required to be a rogue or a monk. Except that you can't use any of the interesting tactics or come up with any cool ideas on the fly it, as a rogue. You
0: well, can... you just had to have seen them before and you're just doing what you know, right? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's some some guidance for GMs and for players, which mm-hmm. I liked. Um, basically... Explaining how not to ruin your game by not being able to speak. Yeah. But again, I yeah, it's such a frustrating, like weird race that I I don't know why it's here. They're
1: kinda like Kender. Yeah, sort of. Next up is the lizard folk. They are also emotionless, like the Yonti. but like I said before, I think it could be fun to play like a lizard folk kind of as a Vulcan. You know, I don't really understand your strange, warm blooded
0: ways, but fine. Can I eat it? Yeah, and that works too because they get a wisdom bonus.
1: Yeah. Also plus two con. A 30-foot swim speed, which is really nice on a race that doesn't have a strength bonus. Yep. And And, they can hold their breath. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) They get uh, to choose from a couple of ranger skills, and they have a decent bite attack that can be used as a bonus action once a short rest, but it's locked to strength. They do get natural armor of 13 plus their dex modifier. But, of course, now you have one ability with strength and one ability with decks and they actually get a con bonus. So it's really kind of all over the place. They have a, this nice assortment of abilities, but none of them really synergize together. But ironically they make a good caster because they get free light armor.
0: Yeah. You basically get mage armor all mm-hmm. the time.
1: Yeah. Plus that con bonus, which is nice for concentration checks.
0: Right. Thing. So the lizard folk do get one kind of neat ability uh, where they can cannibalize a corpse <laughs> in oh, the yeah. middle of combat. To yeah. Heal. It's fine. I think it's interesting. It's cool. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. Not everything in here has to be super powerful. This is how you avoid power creep. <laughs> but I think I think it's a neat ability. I think it's cool. Yeah, you can make darts
1: or a club yeah. out of like animal parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> it's neat. It's never, what they do. Never <laughs> unarmed. Well, they also have the bite. <laughs> right. Like I said, never, never unarmed. unarmed. Speaking of never unarmed, the Tabaxi right the
0: cat folk these are your real furries yeah not a fan so the tabaxi get plus two dex plus one charisma so they are natural swashbucklers if you would like to buy another source book to take advantage of this (laughs) uh they get dark vision they get a 20 foot climb speed uh, perception and stealth proficiency a claw attack which is not dex based which is weird
1: Yeah, strength-based and less damage than the Lizardfolk's bite attack.
0: And then what I think is the most annoying ability in the book, though perfectly fine from a power standpoint, is you can double your speed for a turn. So Tamaxi rogues and monks are nightmares for GMs everywhere trying to manage their combat on a grid.
1: See, I don't think it's a huge problem. It's nice burst movement, but in order to refresh it, you have to spend a round not moving at all.
0: Yeah, not moving from the safety of being a million feet away.
1: But like, that's fine. You ran away. That's okay. Now the rest of your party is getting wailed on,
0: and they hate you. Uh, yeah, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> but you know, it's just—it's uh, <laughs> like it's just an annoying ability to to try and operate at the table. And I'm sure there are going to be ways to make this exploited for I some exploited. purpose or another. Mm. I'm I'm mm. already thinking of the Swashbuckler Monk you can you can hit something and i'm confident somebody will figure out a way to get out of longbow range at the end of a move
1: <laughs> that's okay that's why i include a sharpshooter in uh, every combat
0: <laughs> right <laughs> challenge
1: accepted <laughs> all right next up well, i guess last actually is the triton which is basically a blue aquaman
0: yeah and as somebody who liked the aventi from mm. 3.5 from stormrack uh I don't know. It It left a little bit to be desired for they're,
1: me. They're kind of boring, right? They are the cod of creatures that swim underwater. Like, yeah. Kind of bland, no yeah. flavor.
0: So they get plus one to strength, con, and charisma. It's a bad spread. It's not great. Um, they can breathe water and they have a swim speed, which is really great if you're going to spend a lot of time underwater. But if you're not in a party that has other Tritons... Your campaign isn't going to go underwater for any extended period of time. So that's the yeah. most limited
1: ability. Or if you do, people are going to find ways to get a swim speed. Right. Or they're going to use water walk, whatever.
0: You have to have something like that because it's just paralyzing to not... I mean, because you have disadvantage on every attack if you're underwater and you don't have a swim speed. Right.
1: Now, the swim speed is also helpful for, like we said before, those characters that don't have a strength bonus. But you do.
0: Yeah. Um, you also get to talk to fish. what what. Uh, Though they can't talk back. Well,
1: they never talk back.
0: And uh, and you get a few weather-related spells. Yeah, like fog cloud. And then there's one new spell here, wall of water, which is
1: fine. You do get resistance to cold, which is less useful than resistance to fire, but still decent. And I really like, I know this is never going to come up, but I really like that you don't take any damage from being deep under the water. So, like, the crushing depths. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get resistance to bludgeoning damage. <laughs> right.
0: Which actually would have just been fine. Yeah. <laughs> like. There is a table in here that I really like. The uh, Triton personality has a personality quirks table. Uh, number five is, the surface world is a wondrous place, and you catalog all of its details in a journal. <laughs> With waterproof ink and paper. Yeah, I I, I know. It's like (laughs) you can't take that back with you, (laughs) but you still do it, right? Like this. This is just you're just walking around wide eyed Mm -hmm. all day long. I think it's great.
1: I like to think that, like, all the time Aquaman is accidentally losing his cell phone because, like, it got wet again. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why he picked up the new iPhone 7. Oh. <laughs> Water resistant up to 60 feet or something. Is it, I thought it was, like, a meter. It's maybe. It's whatever. <laughs> you can drop it in the bathtub. That's what matters. Okay.
1: <laughs> the next section is smaller write-ups for some of the monsters in this book. There's a table that gives you reasons that some of these monsters might actually join an adventuring party, but the book specifically says that they're not balanced. They don't need to be. They might be more powerful. They might be less powerful.
0: And that's never been more abundantly clear than the Orc, which is just worse than the Half-Orc. Straight up worse. It's terrible. Has none of the Half-Orc's cool abilities and gets an intelligence penalty.
1: Uh, Okay, so let's talk about the return of intelligence penalties because, oh, sorry, of ability penalties the orc gets minus two to intelligence and the kobold gets minus two to strength yeah these haven't been in fifth edition until now and i think it sets a bad precedent
0: i well if that's the indicator that you're a monster and not a a pc race (laughs) i mean whatever but yeah i don't like where that's headed so let's just kind of quickly go through we've got a bugbear goblin hobgoblin kobold orc and yuan t pureblood
1: so the bugbear plus two strength plus one dex they're basically rogues. I've seen some people talking about this. They get extra reach when they make an attack, but only on their turn. So it's not going to affect polar Master and it's not going to affect Opportunity Attacks. All it is is really lunging attack from the Battlemaster Fighter.
0: Yeah, it's it's fine. Yeah. Um, they do get extra damage in the first round of combat, though, which is neat.
1: Yeah. Goblins, plus two dex, plus one con, small. They get a bad cunning action and a, some extra damage to creatures bigger than you, but only once per short yeah. rest.
0: Yeah, um, not as playable as a PC race as the Bugbear.
1: Yeah. Uh, I actually really like the Hobgoblin.
0: Yeah, the Hobgoblin's good. That's a plus two con, plus one int, uh, dark vision, light armor proficiency, and and some martial weapon proficiency. Yeah, you get to
1: pick two martial weapons.
0: Which is really, really good for spellcasters. Mm -hmm. And then once per short rest, you can get a bonus to a d20 roll used after you have failed on the roll which is just like hobgoblins don't want to show weakness. Mm -hmm. So they're a little luckier.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the bonus is tied to the number of allies you have nearby who are watching you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it
1: can be up to plus five. I love that this is basically guaranteeing a success. Yeah. Yeah. Once per encounter.
0: Right. Yeah. And the way it's set up is like a little mechanically wonky, but Mm -hmm. so cool that I love it.
1: (laughs) Kobolds plus two decks minus two strength.
0: Yeah. uh, And they're already small. And they're small. Yeah. And yeah, they got dark vision, pack tactics. Which is really good. um, Except they also have sunlight sensitivity. Which
1: is really bad. Yeah. So those are usually just going to offset each other.
0: So sunlight sensitivity means you have disadvantage at stuff when you're in direct sunlight. And pack tactics gives advantage on attacks when you have an ally within five feet of the enemy. So you kind of have to, in order not to be
1: terrible in really most campaigns
0: yeah they get this ability called grovel cower and beg which is a cool name i actually think it's really another neat ability like the hobgoblin where they've taken sort of the personality of the race and turned it into a mechanical thing Mm. so you drop to your knees (laughs) and you beg for mercy (laughs) and it gives advantage to your allies in uh in a radius of course, you need to be in melee,
1: and it really does typecast you. Yeah. Although, I mean, maybe this is an ability where you're like, "No, I am a brave and strong kobold, and I will—I refuse to grovel, cower, or beg." Of course, then you just have a useless racial ability.
0: No, see, I like it as uh, as you're smart enough to know how you're viewed.
1: Oh, so okay.
0: Other other races expect you to be a coward, so you play into their expectations, and that's ultimately their undoing.
1: I will say this is a thing we didn't mention in the kobold lore section, but I really liked, is that they gave an explanation for why sometimes you meet one lone kobold or you get attacked by one lone kobold. And it's because they're a distraction. You're the idiot who is not noticing the rest of the
0: tribe scampering away or taking your valuables. Right. (laughs) Uh, Then we get the orc. Like we've mentioned, this has minus two int. It also has plus two strength and plus one con. It gets the aggressive trait from the orc stat block, but it doesn't get any of the cool stuff from the half orc. Mm -hmm. So... Um, It's just worse. Yeah, if I had a player
1: who wanted to play an orc, I would tell them to use the half-orc stats.
0: Yeah, yeah, because the Relentless Endurance is strong. Mm -hmm. Getting to, you know, get back up when you drop to one hit point or drop to zero hit points, and the uh, extra damage on a critical is great.
1: Yeah, and minus two intelligence, like in fifth edition with point by or the standard array, that means the highest int you can start with is 13, which means you just can't play an int primary class or an int be any good.
0: Right. Or if it's your dump, it's six. Ugh. Yeah. So then the yuan T Pure Blood gets plus two charisma, plus one int.
1: Also no emotions. It's got uh, some decent spell casting similar to the tiefling. You get poison sprays, cantrip, and a couple of like third level spell, fifth level spell. Yeah.
0: Now. Um, (laughs) It gets poison immunity. Which is amazing. Uh, Yeah, because poison is pretty common. And that's also immunity to the poisoned condition, which happens a lot. And then you have advantage on saves versus magical effects. Just like flat across the board. Super handy. Um, This
1: is the only write-up where I might say, okay, this feels like it it could be overpowered.
0: But it's a monster race, so I kind of don't care as much because you shouldn't be playing this. It's it, like, I mean, they're here. So people can play like in the
1: fourth edition monster manual, they had write-ups in the back and they were like, Oh, these are just monster races. And they updated them later. So I think what I might do is water down the advantage and be like, Hey, it's actually those crazy herbs that you eat in you don't see society. And if you're an adventurer walking around and don't have access to them, you get, I don't know, advantage on intelligence, wisdom, and charisma checks like the gnome.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I, my feeling on monster stat blocks is always, if you're asking me to play one, it's because you've, found some way to break it
1: (laughs) like or you are one of those players who wants to be terrible
0: i yeah in which case i'm still saying no yeah so you know it's like i'm okay having a firm distinction between a playable and a a non-playable monster race like i i don't care so i feel like this section is fan service anyway so it's hard for me to get too invested in how balanced they are i would like them to be more balanced
1: but on the whole i think it's fine
0: I enjoyed reading the special abilities. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really good ideas for other things. That's more than I expected. <laughs> like that, <laughs> the the cobalt ability classic. <laughs> Alright, so then the majority of the book is the third chapter, which is the bestiary.
1: There are about a hundred new stat blocks from monsters. And they fall into several categories. We've got the return of fan favorites. There's the Bodak and the Kotobal both of which kill with one look, which is a bit worrying.
0: Yeah, you've got the weird monstrosities, like the flail snail, which made uh, <laughs> its rounds on the internet. Yeah, it's got a magic
1: shell and mace-like
0: tentacles. Uh, the frog chemoth, Which is exactly what it sounds like. The varguil. That's the... Vargui? Varjui? Oh yeah, it's French. It's French, it? yeah. it's the. I think it's varguil. That's how I've pronounced it, mm-hmm. but not being French, I have no idea.
1: <laughs> that is the vampire bat made out of a person's head yeah yeah, yeah. uh
0: the bander hob, the shadow homunculus that <laughs> swallows its prey hole
1: and then a few of our favorite creatures sort of randomly popped up in this manual they've got the cranium rats which some of you may remember from planescape i have always loved them they're just normal rats except when they get into a swarm they all have this psionic ability and they create a hive mind and now they're really intelligent and they can cast spells yep. and they have uh transparent craniums so you can see their brains
0: lovely uh i didn't know these existed beforehand but fell in love with them when i saw their picture the grung the adorable little tropical frog people uh uh, they're bright neon colors cast based society very very evil spit on their weapons yeah poison them poison their yeah. weapons yeah they're uh they're annoying little bastards but <laughs> i just love that picture it was the first picture i tweeted when i picked up the uh the book <laughs> this is the return of some scary fae the red cap the quickling the boggle uh that quickling is so uninspired for me though it's just a super high dex creature with proficiency and all the dex skills and a 120-foot movement. They
1: live fast and die young. I think that is exactly that is actually
0: right. yep. one of their stat entries or yeah. one of their like, oh, really, headers the <laughs> is live fast, die young.
1: Uh, well, com- contrast that to the Red Cap, which I thought had an amazing write-up.
0: Yeah, I like the Red Cap a lot.
1: Now, you know, I knew this information, but it was well presented and just, they are creepy.
0: Yeah, so a red cap is, think David the Gnome, except with murderous blood bloodlust <laughs> And a
1: giant sickle and heavy iron boots.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the boggle is um, a goofily named fae who lives in bogs. And nothing like the similarly named character from Labyrinth. Or the dice-based word find game. <laughs>
1: no, it's exactly like that game. Oh, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> then the appendix has uh, entries for NPCs of each of the character classes.
1: And a bunch of the subclasses. Yeah.
0: So you can have a stat block formatted that waters down the ability so it's actually sort of balanced. And then we've mentioned this in the monster lore sections,
1: but a lot of the entries are an expansion of the core line of monsters. So, you know, a bunch of new orcs, a bunch of new hobgoblins, lots of new mind flayers. Yeah.
0: Then there are a lot of entries that add new options or append to existing monster manual entries Mm -hmm. so you'll have both books open probably as you're trying to build encounters and that sort of thing
1: yeah it can be kind of a pain it also means that you need to own the monster manual like you can't just buy this book and really get away with having enough monsters or enough complete monsters to run full campaigns yeah so on the whole like as usual with bestiaries published later in a product cycle these monsters are a lot tougher than the ones that you meet in the regular monster manual
0: yeah i would not say the crs are equivalent yeah they did some changing of the algorithm and didn't tell us yeah uh there's lots of multi-attack has expanded quite a bit yeah Um, at low levels there's cr1 creatures that have three attacks instead of one Mm -hmm. or sorry instead of two and they multi-attack um, lots more flexibility in what they can do and some save or suck effects added on top of those attacks yeah there's at some times. save or die there are
1: some fail two saves and you die there's a bunch of auto damage a lot well a fair number of monsters have auras that either do auto damage or force a save at the beginning of like every other creature's turn and like incapacitate like take you out of the fight
0: Yeah, and keep in mind, an auto-damage aura in particular is a problem because of death saves. Yeah. So if you're lying on the ground making death saves, you still take damage from that aura, even though the monster isn't thinking about you. And each time you take that damage, it adds a failed death save. The third time that happens, you're done. Even if you make all of your death saves, you can still be dead before you get a chance to roll three.
1: Yeah, and it can be very hard for a GM... To not have that happen, because what do they do? Have the monster retreat when it's winning? Exactly. There are also, we noticed, monsters with strange or weird effects that a player or a PC wouldn't necessarily know about that can totally screw them.
0: So this is the Swarm of Rot Grubs, (laughs) (laughs) which is uh, one of the beasts in, in Appendix A that enters your skin when it bites you and after a round it's embedded too deeply for you to treat it directly mm-hmm. um, if you are reduced to zero hit points it's because they have eaten your heart and you're dead now and every round you take 1d6 damage per rot
1: grub that has infected you yeah and one hit from the swarm can leave 1d4 rot grubs on you
0: correct now ishan <laughs> let me ask you a question okay um now that you know what rock grubs are, mm-hmm. uh how would you think to prevent that rock grub from burying itself in your skin after it bites you?
1: Hmm. Well, first off, I
0: know that it's going to be
1: burrowing into my skin cuz my first thought would be to like smash it. Well, that's
0: a good question. Do
1: you know? Uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah.
0: So let's assume you do.
1: Okay. Um I I would I guess I would try to scrape it off.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, you're dead. <laughs> would you? Would you maybe like try and pour brandy on it or something? That would.
1: That should kill it, right? No. No.
0: No. Could you wash it off?
1: Obviously. Disinfect it. Oh, how about this? What if I hit it with acid? Nope. What if I freeze it? Nope. What if I suck out its life force with necrotic energy?
0: Gross. And nope.
1: What if you cut off your arm? Yeah, that must do it, right? Nope. What if I chain lightning myself and hit the rot grub? Nope. Okay, so how do I get rid of this rot grub?
0: Oh, come on. You haven't even tried. What if you are in dark sun and you defile yourself so that the necrotic energy <laughs> sucks his life force out? That must work, right? No. <laughs> you got to use fire. You got oh, you, you to burn uh, yourself. You got to cauterize the wound with it inside.
1: One thing they don't mention is if I got hit with three rot grubs can I cauterize all three in with one action?
0: Yeah, if that action is fireball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a problem on its own if you know the terms of it, right? The idea that it sucks an action out each time you get hit, it, it sucks up your next action preventing yourself from certain death. I don't have an issue with that. The problem is it's meant to be a trick creature, right? Mm. It's a trap in and of itself. And it, I just don't know how you solve that without metagaming given that you have one round to figure it out.
1: Well, I mean, the other option is that you just keep healing a creature for whatever, eight hours. The eight hours
0: it will take, hopefully, your cleric to memorize Lesser Restoration. Yeah, exactly. And heal the disease. Right. Or your paladin to use five points of lay on hands to remove a disease. So if you don't have those options, you're dead. Right. There are also high-level
1: spells, sometimes once per day, on mid-range creatures. And like you mentioned, mid range creatures sometimes have really high level spells, like access to like an eighth or ninth level
0: spell. Yeah. You know, in general, those are not the spells that are going to break a campaign for you, but they can be hard to use as a DM if you're not careful. Like, for example, I don't think a hag coven getting access to eye bite is a problem. Mm-mm. Right? It's a six level spell, it's a save or suck. It can end an encounter if it's not dealt with. But it's ultimately, it's a concentration spell, and you'll get back on your feet eventually. I think many of the selections for
1: creatures in this monster manual are, are good, or useful, or they're fun. But I don't know that we needed seven new dinosaurs. I mean, I guess Moon Druids will be happy,
0: but that's really about it. Yeah. pygmies stand out for me. Zvarts. I don't mind Zvarts <laughs> because I play Baldur's <laughs> Gate. And I remember the Shavart.
1: Did they need to be written up? No,
0: they didn't. Okay, Okay. fine, you win. What about fire newts? Uh, I was surprised to see this on here for you because I thought it was cool that they ride into combat on those giant Chocobo things.
1: Which is fine, but I aren't there salamanders just more salam? Don't we already have salamanders?
0: Yeah, salamander is like a thing from mythology, though
1: yeah so like
0: you know amphibious
1: lizardy type creatures that are immune to fire and do fire damage and worship fire
0: yeah okay more fire yeah Yeah. i got it
1: message received fortunately immune to rot grubs
0: (laughs) so there is a serious lack of high level monsters oh yeah and i get that the majority of campaigns are going to be in the lower or low mid levels right so under CR12 is going to be the, the majority of D&D campaigns that get played. But leaving high-level play so unsupported also discourages it. And I hate that.
1: Yeah, you've got to make it up all on your own. But those are the most complicated monsters. And the game's been out for several years now. Yeah. Like, that's, there's uh, been time. Yeah, There are adventure paths that go to 15. So what do people do after that?
0: Right. Apparently nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, you go by the next adventure path. Oh. Which starts at one, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah. What, what happened to, like, the Astral Dreadnought? Or some greater demons? Or the
0: <laughs> the Archfiends of the Nine Hells?
1: Yeah. Or all those high-level
0: spellcasters that Forgotten Realms
1: is lousy with.
0: So, that one I disagree with you on. Because you can't kill Elminster, right? Like It doesn't need to be
1: Elminster, right? I just... Someone, anyone, high level. I don't know, Manchun?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I get that. But this is specific to Forgotten Realms. There are a bunch of untouchable characters because they're sort of the touch points for so much of the fiction.
1: Well, then give me a Red Wizard of Thay, an unnamed Red Wizard of Thay, who's level 18.
0: Um, Archmage. Okay, level ar- 18. Archmage is CR 12. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so when you said level 18, you screwed me. <laughs>
1: but they could easily be reskinned actually much more easily than some of these like actual monsters. If
0: they made them generic, you're right. They we could get some NPC stat blocks. And they started that with the player classes. Mm. But, you know, those are very generic themselves. They don't belong in a Forgotten Realms book. They belong in a Monster Manual.
1: Well, I will say, especially in a Forgotten Realms book, there's really no excuse for not having some high-level monsters cuz like Elminster himself could run a gauntlet of this entire book like top to bottom probably without resting, by himself.
0: Yeah, I did appreciate his notes in the margins.
1: <laughs> of course, looking at the CRs and then looking at his note, he was like, oh, these are terrifying. Or Volo's like, "Ah, oh, so scary. But I was like, but it's
0: CR3. Uh, yeah, that was the, um, the note on the grungs. One of the things that made me love so very, very much of them was the note from Volo. Sentient poisonous frogs that live in trees. <laughs> Truly, the gods hate us. Which in Forgotten Realms is absolutely true. Uh, well, yes, but also um, there was this thing called the Spell Plague.
1: <laughs>
0: That's how you know the gods hate you. <laughs> like Not because there's tiny uh, tree frogs that eat you and enslave you. Volo's a bit hyperbolic. Yeah.
1: I will say also, I didn't see much of him or Elminster, honestly, considering how much hype there was about how like, oh, Volo and Elminster, like they have a back and forth and like they undercut each other.
0: Yeah, they're just little notes in the margins of the monster stat blocks, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, uh, actually similar to what's in the monster manual. They're almost like highlight notes, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but very little in his voice. It didn't even have the thing in Sword Coast Adventures Guide where at one point he was like, "Well, I haven't been here, so let me get this person to write it for you," and it and it kind of sort of changed perspective, though it was still just a generic third party narrative mm-hmm. voice, which. We were on the Tome Show roundtable to discuss expectations and and the previews for Volo's guide. And we both expressed concern about the voice of Volo and Elminster being annoying. Yeah, we
1: thought there might be too much.
0: It's definitely not too much. It's not too much. It's surprisingly little for how much it was hyped in the marketing. Mm -hmm. Which, hey, I think that made a better product. I think it's just weird marketing.
1: Yeah. All right. So our final verdict. We do have a few gripes.
0: Yeah, so for me the art is getting worse. I thought the art in the core books was really really good across the board, and
1: except for a few like weird pieces.
0: Yeah, and and now the weird pieces are becoming more common. Um and and so I'm finding it really hit or miss. It's very fifth edition art mm. style. Um and the layout is a little weird in places in here. I noticed where they have the little post-it notes that are supposed to like kind of have been appended to the stat block sometimes the art overlaps that as though the art was drawn in after the note which doesn't make any sense
1: yeah i on a casual read found about a half a dozen pretty obvious typos none of them that change meaning fortunately and none of them in rules sections but still
0: and that's a taste thing Right, I mean, it's a fit and finish thing, and you know we can easily look past that. One thing that's missing here, that's a a huge feature of it, is the battle maps. Mm-hmm. They're really cool. Um, in a lot of cases, they're really helpful for a DM to plug into their campaign if they want to utilize those monsters. But you can't use the map in the book. Yeah, they're way too small. Um, so if it's not available as a download, and from what we've seen so far, we haven't seen it on Wizard's site as available to download. Um, the way like the map from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide was a huge download file. Mm -hmm. If that isn't made available, it's really hard to use, especially like the intricately drawn things like the goblin war camp. Mm -hmm. You know, like the whole appeal of that is that it looks like a war camp. If you just draw that out on a grid freehand, it's going to look lousy in comparison. It's going to miss kind of that je ne sais quoi.
1: Yeah, why they use up so much time. One, having someone draw a really great piece of art. And also the space in the book if we can't really use
0: it. Yeah. So I do have to say here, this is one of the perks of getting one of the virtual tabletop versions. And I have the Fantasy Grounds version. They were kind enough to send it to me as a preview. And um, that's one of the neat things is having those maps and then having the maps scrubbed of the DM material. So the the numbering and that sort of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. But of course, if you don't want to use a virtual tabletop, you're kind of SOL.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, that is very tied to using that as your media. Um, And and it's a good, faithful adaptation of it. You know, all of the benefits of using virtual tabletop come along with that. They've got to throw a bone to the people who own the physical copies as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, Wizards needs to do that.
1: So speaking of physical copies, you had said that you were very interested in getting the collector's edition black cover.
0: I did. Did you
1: get it? I did. Oh, all right, great.
0: Yeah, um, it's... You know, the line art that we all expected. I don't love that it's a Mind Flayer on the cover, mm. but I am still happy that I have a collector's edition, and uh, and I think that's kind of cool.
1: Was it worth the extra cost? Oh, no.
0: <laughs> no, I, it's pure collector service, right? But, you know, for an extra 20 bucks or whatever the difference was between my local store and Amazon, I, you know, I wanted it while I could. And I got it two weeks earlier, than the widespread release.
1: All right. So for anyone who is a GM for 5th edition or for any players who want access to one of the new races in this book or if you're a player who really loves monster lore, I would say that Volo's Guide to Monsters is a definite buy.
0: I completely agree. This book brought me back to when I first started playing D&D and I took the monster manual and I just started reading. Mm-hmm. Right, And it just sparked my imagination and it gave me ideas of cool things that I could see running in a game that I never managed to get to the table. Right, But it it gave me that spark of imagination again and I love that about this hobby and I love that about this book.
1: Yeah, I hope all subsequent monster manual type books for 5th edition have a similar format in that there are some sections that are much, much more in-depth rather than simply an encyclopedia of monsters. Yeah. I'll say if you're not one of those three groups that we mentioned, this is still like a book you will probably want to buy.
0: Yeah, I think this, compared to the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, I think this is a cooler read, just mm. a cooler casual read. You yeah. know, like like I said, I was excited and, and it piqued my interest much more than reading the lore of a campaign setting does.
1: Yeah, especially like if you're not going to run in the Sword Coast, then none of that information was really applicable. And it was sort of hard to transfer over to a different setting. Yeah. But all of this stuff is very easy to use elsewhere.
0: Yeah. And and like we said, you know, even as we went through the specific lore of different monsters, we're thinking, oh, any type of guerrilla band could use these types of tactics. That's Mm -hmm. brilliant. You know, we can easily adapt this for other uses and other monsters.
1: And there still is a fair amount of player information. So, it's certainly not a waste if all you're really after is new races.
0: So, is there anybody who shouldn't
1: buy this? I can't think of anyone that I would tell not to buy it. You know, there are probably some people who don't need it or if like you would need to scrape the cash together, don't worry about it if someone in your group, someone else in your group has it.
0: Yeah. I would say it's not mandatory for players. Yeah. I think it's very nice to have for players. Um, and I wouldn't discourage anybody who is interested in it, but. If nothing we've said has been that exciting, you're probably the right person to not buy the book.
1: Yeah, it's fine to skip. I would say if you're just starting out in 5th edition and you don't have any of the source books yet, this is probably one you can wait on.
0: Yeah. I would buy the Monster Manual first. Yeah, definitely. Would you buy a published adventure before Volo's Guide? Say you had the core books, you're a new player, you found Total Party Thrill.
1: Oh, well, then I would probably quit the hobby.
0: (laughs) You're buying your fourth D&D book. Would you rather have, I I think we would both agree we wouldn't buy Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide as our fourth book. Right. Would you buy Volo's Guide or would you buy one of the adventures?
1: I would buy one adventure, I think. And then after that, I'd probably never buy another adventure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you're running a campaign for the very first time, it's nice to sort of have your hand held like that. And then in the future, maybe buy one that you're really interested in. But I'd probably go Adventure and then Volo's Guide. Yeah, I think I would agree. Then after that, Skag, and then maybe Adventures after that.
0: That makes sense to me.
1: And also, we're not in a space where you've got a new book available every single month. Like, this is basically 30 to $50 per year. At this pace, yeah. So, like, ask for it for Christmas. Right. Slash
0: Hanukkah Kwanzaa. Christmas Hanukkah Kwanzaa. Friendsgiving.
1: Your friends are not going to buy this for me.
0: White Elephant at work.
1: <laughs> Yankee Swap.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Martha. You're from the South, too. You call it Yankee Swap. Martha
1: ended up with it. Sorry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she opens it randomly to the page with the Mindflare autopsy. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> All right. So we are going to skip the Character Creation Forge because we are running long on time, but... Let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's malice minus meat. And you can tweet at the show at
1: TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com.
0: And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And if you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can
1: also find us on Stitcher.
0: It's like a Pandora for
1: podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us.
0: And we have some reviews piling up in our inbox that we need to get to, but we are way over time. <laughs> so <laughs> we are going to move right along to tease the next episode. But- I hope you enjoyed this episode on thanksgiving right maybe you could avoid some time with the family yeah but probably a good time to go back and hang out with them now (laughs) so what do we have planned for next week we're talking about low fantasy in D, &D. and in the character creation forge Uh, we're building one of my favorites the lazy lord Uh, that's fitting for you know the week after thanksgiving yeah that's all i want to do tomorrow (laughs) you attack that turkey right (laughs) i critted i pass out Alright, that's it for episode 69 of Total Party Thrill. (laughs) We didn't even make a joke about that. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.